Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are up in this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Before we go any further, I want to make sure to get the word out. Southeast Linux Fest is happening this coming week. It's taken a long time to get all of the pieces in place, particularly during a virtual event in which the speakers and the audience is going to be remote. And so there hasn't been a lot of direct communication on that. And I apologize for that. But that is happening this coming weekend. So join us on Friday for Southeast Linux Fest. You can learn more at southeastlinuxfest.org. There you can sign up to receive emails direct to your inbox about the latest. It's going to be hosted entirely on matrix this year so we're excited to see that again your emails your phone calls they go to the front of the line at the program our email our first email comes in from ryan this hour he says good evening Owen. thanks for everything you do for the community through the ask noah show i'm trying to improve my daily pc workflow i work the most number of hours on a windows laptop provided by a client but i prefer my linux laptop and my linux desktop for many tasks I've been trying to set up a desktop with one keyboard and one mouse and the easiest navigation between laptops and the desktop as possible. In the past, I've used my laptop monitor, but I have two 27-inch monitors in which I would like to use exclusively for visually switching between my laptop screen and my 27-inch 1080p monitor. It's beginning to start to stress my eyes. Up until now, I've used an HDMI switch, a USB switch, plus an HDMI slash DVI slash VGA switch. I use this on the monitor itself. Now, this is pretty clunky. I have considered that a better solution may be a software solution, something like Remina. But with my only my Linux desktop having direct monitor, keyboard, mouse connections, my biggest challenge is that my Windows laptop provided by my client is very locked down. In other words, I have no admin access. Some hardware solution is probably necessary in this case, but I'm doubtful that a USB-C dock exists that will do more than add more toggle buttons and confusion to my desktop. Ideally, I would like to have the option to utilize both monitors for any one PC or give any one PC any one monitor and another PC to another monitor. Can you recommend any combination of hardware and software solutions to meet my needs? So, to I, I guess we could break this down. There's a couple different ways you could attack this problem, Ryan. Uh, the first is you could attack it with a hardware solution. So you could do something like a number of KVM switches or a KVM switch that you plug each individual device and you just sit down. This would be the traditional way to do it, right? You sit down with a, a, a your 27-inch monitor um, and and you you have a, a KVM switch that cycles between the, between them. Now that obviously doesn't address your second monitor situation. In which case, I suppose the only way to do that would be to have a second KVM switch. But that would eliminate the issue of you've got one keyboard, you've got one mouse, and then you just roll the monitors. You'd have to switch you know the second one by hand. But that would probably get you there. And every time you want to add a new computer that you want to access um, from the single keyboard, mouse, and monitor setup, then you would just 
add that to your KVM switch. Now, there is a more elegant solution, a piece of software called Synergy. It's made by a company called Simless. You can learn more at Simless.com, Simless.com slash Synergy. And of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. What Synergy does is it allows you to control your computers with one keyboard and one mouse. It's using entirely software to do this. And so you can set up the way that your laptops or multiple desktops or multiple collection of laptops and desktops are arranged. And and Synergy is going to seamlessly move your mouse cursor and keyboard to the machine um, that you're on. So, for example... If you had your work laptop set up to the right, in Synergy, you would configure it set up to the right. And when you move your mouse far enough to the edge of the screen on your primary desktop, the mouse is going to start to automatically move via magic software on your laptop. Now, there are two things I'd like you to consider here. First of all, Synergy is not an open source piece of software, and you're giving it access to your keyboard and your mouse inputs. And so you better really trust the company Simless. For this reason, it's why I don't use it on any of my critical production machines. It's not that it's not a rel- it's not it's not that it is not a well-established, reputable piece of software because it absolutely is that. It's just not a well-established, reputable piece of software that I can crawl under and look at the code or pay somebody to look at the code. And so I don't for sure know what's happening under the hood. And that's somewhat concerning. But it is nonetheless the exact software solution that somebody in your situation would be looking for. And so it's something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out there as an option. Now, I'll tell you what I have personally gone to because I somewhat wind up in this same boat. Uh, I have a, I, 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 let's start with this. I have a, my own business. I have AltaSpeed Technologies. And of course, I fund my own laptop from AltaSpeed Technologies. The company gives me a laptop. And because I own the company, obviously, I can set up the laptop any which way I want. And so there aren't really any restrictions on, um, on w- what I can do on that laptop. That's not always the case, though, however. I have contracts that are negotiated either through, um, the military for doing work on the Air Force base that's that's here in town, as well as the university systems. Uh, oftentimes when we do those kinds of contract jobs or subcontracting for another IT company even, um, oftentimes we'll be required to use a laptop that they issue much like you're doing. I also have part-time jobs where I, I work directly for um, my home church, for example, as well as the radio station. I'm employed there directly. And so in those situations, I get no say in the computer that's handed to me. Um, and so I, I've made just one request of any client or any organization that I'm working for with, and that it's that they provide me a laptop with a Thunderbolt docking capability. And I explain, you know, very clearly that uh, my workflow as well as m- my physical health, if I'm going to be expected to sit in front of a computer for nine, ten hours a day, I would very much like my back uh, not to go out. And, and to do that, I need to have proper posture. I need to sit at the proper height and I need to have monitors that are adjusted to that proper height and so on and so forth. Additionally, as far as productivity goes, if I have a dual monitor setup or a, a triple monitor setup, that gives me the opportunity um, to, to be more productive and, and multitask more effectively and get the task done. And most business, in fact, all businesses have been very well, have been receptive to that. And And the few times that I've run into pushback, it's been something like, Hey, today we can't do that because we've not budgeted for that, but in the future we would be happy to consider something like that. And so even in those cases, I have been given a laptop that has a USB-C port on it, and I can use a regular uh, Type-C dock even though it's not Thunderbolt. Now, here's what that gets you. My Thunderbolt dock, I have three of them. I have one that sits at my work office, um, which is – it is structured to be aesthetically pleasing because clients – 
oftentimes have to visit with me inside of my office. And so my office has to be presentable for other people. And so there's a small, reasonable 24-inch monitor uh, that sits off to the corner with a standard little keyboard, little mouse, and two little speakers. And that is, that's, that's my office computer, right? Then at home, I have my actual desk that is tailored around the way that I want to work. And the way that I want to work is two gigantic 4K 27-inch monitors that are on risers, so it gets it right to the right height. I have an uplift desk that um, can, that is suited. I'm a short person, so when I'm seated and my feet are 90 degrees on the floor, the desk height for me has to be 29 and a half inches, and so I figured that out. And, and I have a desk that goes down to 29 and a half inches. Not all of them do. And I have a keyboard and mouse. And because I am a somewhat of an audiophile, I like listening to, to good music and, and having that music delivered in, in crystal clear audio. Or if I'm editing video or audio, obviously I want to be able to hear all of those things. I have some very nice studio reference speakers that are connected to that Thunderbolt dock. And so I take my, let's say my ultra speed laptop and I plug it into my dock downstairs and I'm able to use that in my lab at home. And I have, you know, good audio and I have nice big monitors and I have a good comfortable keyboard and everything is at the right height and everything is just laid out perfectly ergonomically for me. I can take that exact same laptop and go into my office. And even though it's not an ideal working environment because the computer working space is kind of off to the corner, I'm still able to get the majority of things done. And at the end of the day, all of my files and all of my applications and everything that's set up translates because it was just one computer that went one place to the other. I have a third docking station that I've nicknamed Minimum Viable Battle Station or MVBS. And the idea between MVBS is oftentimes we'll go out to a client location and we're going to be there for one week or two weeks. We just wrapped up a job where we were on, on, on a client location for six, six and a half weeks uh, doing a job. Doesn't do me a lot of good to have the most ergonomic, well-designed, whatever, uh, Thunderbolt docking station if it's sitting down in my basement and I'm not there to use it, right? Especially if I'm out of town. And so where MVBS comes in is it, is it, 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 it was specifically designed from the standpoint of what is the minimum amount of desk space I need to get a 4K 27 inch monitor? And I figure that out and then plus lay the keyboard out and lay the mouse out. And, and wh what do I need to comfortably rest my hands and what are the dimensions of that? I figured that out and, I, you know, to try something, I cut it out of a piece of plywood. And just sat down and said, does this work? And sure enough, it, it worked flawlessly. And I was able to figure out, yeah, this is the minimum amount of, 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 of workspace that I need to get my job done. And, um, and then went and bought an actual piece of hardwood and bought a, a sit stand, uh, frame that I use when it's sitting in its normal resting position at our office. Um, but if it needs to go out to a client location, there are a series of Pelican cases that the entire thing breaks down, goes into two or three Pelican cases, and then can be moved out and reassembled in 10 or 15 minutes uh, anywhere. Uh, and, and, and that is, again, a Thunderbolt dock. So as it relates to multiple machines, when I got my laptop from Latent Broadcasting and they said, you know, you don't get a say in it. We're just going to give you a laptop. It'll be set up the way that we want it to be set up. I said, OK, can I get it with a Thunderbolt connection? And they were kind enough to oblige that. I now took the exact same three uh, desktop work environments that I had set up for my UltraSpeed laptop, and I set it up to use with my latent laptop. I just plugged the Thunderbolt cable in, and boom, all of my, my monitors, my keyboard, my, my, my printers, and all the things that I had set up came to life. And so when I'm working in my office, I can do there. When I'm working out at home, I can do there. And when I'm working in the field, I have an option to, to use it there. And I eventually circled back to them and said, hey, would you be willing to buy me Thunderbolt docking station for my my little desk cubicle at the station. They said, yeah, sure, we can do that. And so now I have a station there. And I took my personal laptop, uh, which is an X1 Carbon, and I've started using that in, again, I didn't invest anything in, in my personal computer 
computing space. I just had a laptop, but because I had built all of this infrastructure out for other purposes, I was, and it's all Thunderbolt, any Thunderbolt laptop now can get connected to my 227-inch monitors. And so when my wife comes to me and says, hey, could you rip these DVDs for us or these Blu-rays for us or can you edit these home videos for the kids? I would never be able to justify the expense of studio reference speakers and and nice big displays for my personal use because I just don't, first, I don't have enough time to do stuff for personal use, but I can justify those things for work. I'm able to repurpose all of those things because of the tremendous flexibility of Thunderbolt. So it, that's a long way of saying that the answer to your, your solution, if you can arrange it, is Thunderbolt. And with Intel opening the spec for Thunderbolt and including that uh, essentially as part of the as part of the next generation of USB 4, uh, that is going to quickly become the standard on laptops. And I think you're going to have a hard time finding one that doesn't have Thunderbolt capability uh, sometime in the near future. And so that would be my strong suggestion if you can push your, your clients in the direction that way. And if at least if you even if you can't, that's still what I would hold as the ultimate solution, then kind of work your way back from there with what you can accomplish. As far as actually connecting a desktop, I've looked high and low uh, there are very few desktops that support Thunderbolt. I did buy one of the, a couple of the Intel Nooks, which do have Thunderbolt in them. Uh, one of the pieces of software I like to play with from time to time is Daz 3D, which is a 3D modeling software, and it's only available for Windows. And I'm not the kind of person that is going to install Windows on any of my computers, but I don't necessarily have an objection to buying a dedicated little uh, uh, a nook to and and installing a copy of Windows 10 in just DAS 3D. And when I want to use it, I take out this little thing that sits ordinarily inside of the box on a shelf and plug it into the Thunderbolt dock in there. Now I have access to a keyboard, mouse, monitor. I don't have to assemble entire desktop. I've just connected one cable. So it's kind of a way to kind of cheat and get around some of the, the barriers that may exist. Our second email comes in from Amit. Amit writes in and says, Hi Noah, this is Amit from Israel. First of all, thanks for the great show and everything you do for the community. I usually do not write in or engage with the community, but this time, I think I have a solution for the caller, Tony, from episode 234. If I understand his concern correctly, he wishes to have some sort of way to roll back a physical server in the event that an update failed as a result of an issue. This can actually be achieved with a utility called Boom. You can learn more at github.com slash snapshot manager slash boom. Also, redhat.com, uh, and he gives a link to booting uh, a RHEL LVM snapshot. So I want to give a, a little bit of backstory here just so we're, we're all on the same page. LVM is essentially a way of of combining a, a physical disk into a pool and then redistributing that out and creating disks on top of that pool. It's called the Logical Volume Manager, and it's something that was introduced in RHEL back in maybe six, I think, maybe even earlier than that, maybe Tale of Five. I think six, though. Uh, and, and LVM is a fantastic way to manage your disks if you don't have access to something like ZFS. Back to the email, Boom allows creating a grub entry out of every LVM snapshot, which means that you can boot into the server state as it was prior to the failed update, delete the snapshot containing the failed update attempt. The Red Hat article has a detailed how-to on how to do this. However, I couldn't find a port for Ubuntu, which Tony uses, so he may have to recompile. Hope this helps. All the best, Amit. And of course, Amit, thank you very much for writing in. I have not previously used Boom. I've used LVM and I've used Snapshots, but I've never used Boom. And so it's interesting to know that there is a utility out. Of course, we'll have that link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our third email comes in from Dan. Dan writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I hope you all are doing well. I'm starting a business and I've been an open source advocate and Linux fan since way back. 
Uh, now that I'm starting my business with security and privacy invasions being worse than ever, I'm looking for a package of Linux apps that would help, particularly in MRP, also known as a manufacturing resource program. Do you know of any outstanding or do you know of any or does your outstanding audience have any advice or favorites? Thanks a lot, Dan. And this one, I am going to punt to the audience. I don't know anything about management, manufacturing resource uh, programs. I- I'm not in the manufacturing industry. I have very little of, I think we've had one client in 15 years that, that worked in manufacturing. So I don't know a lot about it, but I'm going to throw that out to the community and see what comes back. So Dan, listen in next week and the weeks following uh, for, for an update on that. I'm sure somebody will have the answer to your question. Our pick of the week this week is QZ. IND Trace. So this is a browser plugin for sending documents and raw commands to a printer or an attached device. I'll get into where the specific use case of where this application came into uh, momentarily, but I want to talk about the 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 software project as a whole to begin with. So this is a small little applet that you install on your computer. And essentially what it allows you to do is tie a local printer and advertise or have that local printer communicate with a web-based application. So the way that I have specifically used this application is uh, at our church, we have it's 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 kids camp. And so all of the kids come in for for a week and they're coming in and hanging out uh, and, and, and participating in activities. And obviously this is something that it's not typically geared towards, uh, just the families that, that normally attend the church. It's also kind of an invitation for communities kind of around the neighborhood and around the city. And, and as part of that though, the, a, a typical attendance where it may be just a few hundred kids, uh, obviously doubles or even in some cases triples with the amount of uh, kids that are coming through the door. And so tracking them, um, becomes of paramount concern for safety and all of those things. And so one of the things that the church likes to do is print out little tags that that have both uh, the child's name as well as it, like, you know, allergies and stuff like that that are printed on the tag itself and then a pickup tag for the parent. So when the parent comes back and says, I want to take this kid home, you can verify and say, OK, you have the right pickup tag. You can take the kid. And then there's a there's a positive correlation there. The problem was or is. Uh, that you want to be able to talk to these printers and you want to share them out so the devices that are running the software that are checking in can talk to the, pr- the web-based application that's checking the kids in can then print uh, and, and access local printers. Or in our case, we wanted to actually share that printer between a number of devices. So I took a bunch of uh, Lenovo Think Centers, tiny little micro Think Centers that are maybe only, you know, maybe four, eight inches long and maybe only an inch tall uh, and connected them uh, to a printer, and I used the uh, the QZ Tray app to share that printer to the web-based application. And so the QZ Tray, it just starts up. It's an open-source uh, application, starts up, and runs a browser plugin, and then the browser is able to send documents and raw commands to a printer attached. It can also then share that printer over the network so that other devices are able to access it as well. Now, that leads us right in to our gadget of the week. The gadget of the week is the Zebra ZD420, specifically the ZD400 series because they make it in a bunch of different variants. Now, this is a direct thermal or transfer a thermal printer. It's designed for printing the name tags that I was just talking about. The thing I like about the Zebra 420, first of all, natively works with Linux. It's literally as simple as plugging in the USB cable, clicking the 
the uh, the ad printer button choosing the driver which is built right it was built right into my ubuntu or kubuntu uh distribution and the printer worked uh, no tweaking whatsoever required uh zebra manufactures some of the highest quality devices out there and they're typically used in in professional industry so this is the kind of printer that you would see if you went into a hospital and had like a, a wristband printed or a name tag printed uh, zebra is the company that makes the little handheld pdas that you often see either in in healthcare or often you'll see them in industry for scanning tags and, and doing inventory and those kinds of things. They make very high-end industrial devices, and the printers are no exception. Some of the best little printers I've ever worked with in my life. Uh, and I've been blown away with their quality and the ease of use and all those kinds of things. I was using it next to a competitor of Zebra's, and the competitor essentially had this reset procedure where it tried to figure out where the label was, and there was a single little laser, and it kind of worked. With the Zebra printer... Not only is the laser repositionable, so you can you can do a variety of different size labels or a variety of different style labels. It also uh, has the ability of having a external label cutter, and so if the label comes out, it'll actually chop the label off and spit the label the rest of the way out, and that prevents uh, the user from walking up to a kiosk and and pulling on the label and stripping out the little gears that that have the motor that run the rollers. Um, so they've really put a lot of thought in into the way that this device works. Now the ZD420 is an, is is available with a variety of configurations. You can buy it as just a USB printer that starts at just under $400. You can buy it with a Bluetooth module, a network module, a Bluetooth low energy module, and all of these can be used then to pair with things like iPads or, or Android devices, uh, mobile devices. Again, you can use it with the QZ Tray app to share it with with other de- with um, with so that um, uh, a host of different devices running a host of different operating systems can all speak to it. And, and again, the quality is just above and beyond. So this actually one of the things I think we're going to do with it is look at if is look at using it for doing mailing labels and printing postage. And I haven't dug in. Uh, Totally uh, on that, so I'm not exactly sure if we'd use like a stamps.com thing, or if there's there's a better solution, or if there's some security things involved with when, when it comes to printing postage, if you can just use any label uh, printer. But I, if if I'm looking for a printer to print labels, specifically thermal labels, I will never look any further than the ZD420 from Zebra. Again, we'll have a sh- we'll have a link in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, Amazon leads the way with what they're calling Amazon Sidewalk. Now, this is the next evolution of cloud. If you've listened to the show for any period of time, then you knew something like this was coming. On June 8th, Amazon will automatically enroll devices in the Amazon Sidewalk. This new wireless mesh service will share a small slice of the Internet bandwidth with nearby neighbors who don't have connectivity and will help to share their bandwidth with you when you don't have a connection. By default, this is going to be on, and that's what's so atrocious about it, is that Amazon has made this decision, and they haven't given a lot of notice. I think they this came out like a week ago, and it's getting turned on by default today. So if you have an Amazon device, and that includes the Alexa, the Echo, the Ring, any of their security cameras, if you have even their outdoor lights, motion detectors, tile trackers, all of these are going to be enrolled in the system and have this feature turned on by default. And let's face it, the vast majority of people out there don't actually dig into these settings. Geeks, we log in, we change all the settings, we customize everything to our liking, we go through and look for things, we scour this stuff for things that might invade privacy or or, or settings that aren't to our liking, make sure all the passwords are changed. Vast majority of people, millions of people, they're not doing that. They just plug the thing in and they use it and they're happy with it. And so millions of people are going to have opted into this program and they may not even know anything about it. And so 
That's what I'm here to share with you. Amazon Sidewalk is a shared network that helps devices work better. It's operated by Amazon at no charge to customers. Oh, well, let's talk about that in a second. Sidewalk can help simplify new device setup. It can extend low bandwidth working range of devices to help find pets or valuable things with tile trackers and help devices stay online even if they're outside the range of their home Wi-Fi. In the future, Sidewalk will support a range of experiences from using Sidewalk-enabled devices such as smart security and lighting and diagnostic for applications and tools. So let's break this down for a little bit. I paid for internet connection. And I put it in my house and I connected it to my router, which I paid for, and my wireless access points, which I paid for, and then my Amazon devices in a world where I bought Amazon devices and connected it to my network, which I don't. But I digress. So I purchased my Alexa and my Echo and my Ring security cameras and my outdoor lights and my motion detectors, and I have tile trackers on all of my things. And I've paid for all of those things with my own hard-earned money. Now, previously... In at like at Alta Speed Technologies, for example, we would go into a business and a business might say, we want people to be able to walk up to our door. We want people to be able to push a doorbell and we want an attendant either sitting at a computer or at a door station to be able to communicate with that person, find out what they want, see if they look like they're a friendly human being that would just like to come in and do business or if it's a dude standing there with two Uzis and we should probably call the police uh, and then take action, i.e. call the police and leave the door locked or push a button and open the door. And so we install something like an Elgo SIP door phone and the user can come up and push that button or we can use something like an access door phone, which actually has a camera built into it. And they push the door doorbell actuator button and that rings either a SIP phone on the other end or rings a security station that has all of the cameras up. That person can then look and see what's going on and then either by pushing a DTMF key on the phone to send a signal to open the strike or the mag lock uh, or uh choose to leave the door closed, all of that can be done. And all and we've been installing those systems for 5, 10 years, and that's never been a problem. What changed is people ultimately decided one day that they they didn't want to go that route. They didn't want to pay a professional to do it, and they didn't want to learn how to do it themselves. They didn't want to listen to a show like this where I will tell you what models and makes and stuff like that to do so that you can set that stuff up yourself. They didn't want to learn how to set an IP address on a camera. They didn't want to learn what an RTSP stream was. They didn't want to learn what a door phone was. They didn't want to learn how access control system works. What they wanted was to be able to go to Amazon and order a device and plug it in and sign into an account and have that device work. And Amazon was more than happy to oblige customers when they made that request. Absolutely, we'll make a device for you that you can just ship, that we can just ship you. It'll still be our device. It'll still run our software and we'll just push updates to it when you want to change to it. We'll make that change. You'll let us know. And as long as it suits our business model, we'll go ahead and make that change. And then we'll, 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 we'll render that service to you. And so for the last, whatever, three, five, seven years, that has been an acceptable solution. And people all over the country have been more than happy to let Amazon run their doorbells and run their cameras and let package delivery people open their trunks to put things in. I mean, you name it, they're willing to violate a boundary or give up a boundary that they, a privacy boundary that they had, uh, because it's convenient and it's easy and it doesn't require me to understand any of this techno babble nonsense. I just, I just signed up for the thing and I plugged the thing in, right? Amazon Sidewalk is Amazon taking what somebody else paid for and somebody else maintains and somebody else owns and redistributing that to other people to benefit the Amazon brand. If you are a person and you are looking at these little tracker things and you're going, well, maybe I can go the Apple route or I can go the Amazon route. Well, Apple has made a very similar statement, right? They've gone a similar direction. Everybody that has an iPhone is participating 
in the Apple ecosystem. And so it's very easy for them to say, hey, this little tracker thing is picked up by an iPhone, send it back to home base, and we'll let the guy know that, uh, yeah, it was seen here last. And since a lot of people have iPhones, that works, right? So Amazon is just, they're just following the exact same model. Hey, if Apple can do that with their devices, we can do that with our devices. But there's a problem. Apple is typically having their customers pay for cell phone service so they have LTE. Amazon isn't going to do that. And they're not about to bury fiber and, and trench fiber in and all the things, but they want to be able to provide internet or they want their customers to have access to internet. So what do you do? You steal it from the people that already have it. And you just turn it on by default and share that out. And anybody that walks by will just be able to pick up that signal and have internet. And as long as you're Amazon, you control those devices. You can choose where that internet goes. But at the end of the day, still my internet, still my devices, still my bandwidth, and Amazon is taking it. Now, they're not taking a big slice of it. There is a maximum bandwidth cap of 80 kilobits per second, and it's also capped at 500 megs total. And so it's not going to drain you or slow your internet down or any of those kinds of things, but it is a decided step over the line in terms of privacy. It is a decided step over the line uh, of, of what should be acceptable and what we should expect uh, from these companies that we do business with. And so just understand, if you're paying for an Echo, if you're paying uh, for a Ring, if you're paying for security cameras or outdoor lights or motion detectors, understand that you are furthering Amazon's business model and it's going to ideally be beholden to them. They'll decide what's good and when it benefits them, they will take everything to include part of your network traffic or part of your network of available bandwidth and they'll share it with other people. KDE 5.2 or 5.22.0 has been released and is with all desktop environments. The best thing I can tell you is to go try it out for yourself, but they have a number of improvements. Adaptive transparency, which means that maximizing a window uh, causes the panel and panel widgets to turn opaque. There is uh, transitions to plasma system monitor from the KSIS guard. Plasma Whalen now supports activities. Uh, activities doesn't get enough attention. I tell you what, I, have, I was having a discussion the other day. Activities is one of those things that if you use your computer for more than one purpose, like let's say work and personal activities is such a clean, easy way to separate those things out. It's unbelievable. System settings now opens to a speed dial, providing easy access to commonly used settings and you have improved accessibility and keyboard navigation. Uh, Purism is going to be shipping. They're finally going to be shipping their phone. Now, here's the deal. Uh, I am a huge fan of 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 the pine phone and i've i've talked at nauseum at how much i like the pine phone and 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 what a good job i think they do but one of the things that i has always been in, in the background for me is purism and libram actually came out before the pine phone it's just some of the decisions that they made i've not entirely agreed with and so i you don't have anything nice to say just don't say anything at all now i have something nice to say the libram 5 a security and privacy focused phone is is shipping and this represents an opportunity for you to take back control of your private information in your digital life through free and open source software and i want to be clear about this the the efforts that libram has led um, with GNOME and the mobile interface from GNOME is in large part why Pine uh, is able to have so many options that they have as a lot of that work was first spearheaded uh, by the Librem folks. And certainly they've gone off, you know, and partnered with KDE and, and done all of those things. And now there's 
all sorts of different mobile operating systems that you can run. Um, but, but the Librem was one of the first phones out there, uh, to prioritize this kind of thing. And so they, they started with their laptop and now they've gone to the phone. One of the things that I really appreciate about the Librem is it's entirely built in the United States. And so that means that they're, they're, it's, it's a premium version of the phone, uh, built with privacy by default, made entirely in the United States has hardware kill switches, specifically designed hardware that puts you in control of the flow of information, and it's shipping. You can just order one. Now, here's the downside. The specs are a 5.7 IPS display, so 720 by 1440. Processor is a 1.5 gigahertz. It comes with 3 gigabytes of RAM. Storage is 32 gigs of eMMC. Wireless, you get 802.11, ABG, and, and 2.4 gigahertz, 5 gigahertz, Bluetooth 4. Uh, there's a baseband radio in it. It has GPS. Uh, there's a smart card reader. Uh, there's sound external storage with micro USB and accelerometer front camera has eight megapixels, rear camera, 13 megapixels includes a vibration motor and a type C charger. The cost on this phone, $1,999, $1,999 with a phone that has 32 gigabytes of storage and three gigabytes of Ram. I like Librem. I like Purism. I'm glad that there's competition out there. I'm glad that Pine are not the only people that are making a device. But seriously, $2,000 for a, for a phone with 32 gigs of RAM, or excuse me, 3 gigs of RAM and 32 gigs of storage. I can walk into any mobile provider under the sun and buy a phone with 128 gigs of storage for less than 500 bucks. And I get that there is an increased expense for doing something very custom and very niche. I understand that there's an even additional expense when you're doing something that's made in the United States, but you are talking about such a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of an audience of somebody who is going to purchase a phone that has, frankly, an unproven operating system. I have used every mobile operating system out, uh, any mainstream mobile operating system that that has any hope of, of, of going anywhere. I've at least tried it, and none of them are fit for daily drivers today. You might be able to use it as a daily driver if the only thing you do is make calls and receive texts, check emails. But if you have banking apps, if you have if you have a requirement to be on any sort of platform, um, it's just not going to work as a daily driver. It might work as a secondary device. And gosh, do I love my Pine phone for being able to experiment on other operating system. Gosh, do I love my Sailfish OS Sony Xperia for having a secondary device that supports full disk encryption, a proper Linux shell. I like all of those things. I'm happy to play with all of those things. None of them cost me even a fraction of $2,000. And so, it, and listen, if you're a person that can afford to spend $2,000 on a Librem 5 because you value privacy and you value the fact that it's built in the United States of America, then God bless you. I'm happy that you're out there and I'm happy that there's a person there that's willing to support this company um, that is clearly doing some really amazing things. But at $2,000, you're so far above and beyond what... What mo- you're you're twice the cost of every premium phone that's out there. You're you're twice the cost of the premium iPhone. You're twice the cost of of the premium Galaxy Samsung phone, and your app market space is a fraction of what the Google Play Store is. Your app App Store is a fraction of what the iOS App Store is, and so you are you're really banking on the fact that people are so concerned about privacy that they're willing to spend twice the amount of money on a phone that has a fraction of the specifications a fraction of the applications and i just don't think that's a realistic perspective um and so i hope to be wrong 
please prove me wrong. Please somebody go out there and buy this device and tell me how great it is and write in and tell me that I'm wrong. I want to be wrong on this. But I just I feel like this is not the place or this is this is just that we, we have a mismatch between what the company is trying to achieve and what their target audience is. There is definitely undeniably people out there that care more about privacy than app space. In fact, I'm one of them to a certain extent. My real information, the things that I actually care about and don't want to get out there, there's no way I would put that on an iOS device or an Android device. I just wouldn't because I just can't trust the platform and there's too many people knocking at it and cracking at it. There are too many solutions out there from extracting data off of it. I just wouldn't do it. And so I'm one of the people that would gladly pay uh, probably four or five hundred dollars, maybe six, seven hundred dollars for a device if it was a really good device that I-, I could invest in the future of mobile operating systems and security and privacy by default. But that's not what I feel like I'm doing here. That wouldn't be what I that that wouldn't be the result I think I would achieve. Frankly, I think that if I'm looking for a device, the Pine Phone at two hundred dollars is an investment in the ability to play with other mobile operating systems. And it helps fund a company that continues to make not just phones, but tablets, laptops, soldering irons, smartwatches. Every device that exists in the mainstream, places like Pine are coming out and saying, we have a more freedom-respecting, privacy-respecting solution. All of them, all of them from Pine OS, and this this, this is the way that they advertise them, all of them, are essentially developer devices. They're devices to get familiar with. And for that, they are fantastic. But I wouldn't use any of them as a daily driver. And so I somewhat question if I could use something like the Purism 5 as a daily driver. I suspect that I wouldn't. And so, again, if I'm wrong, please write me up and tell me live at asknoahshow.com or give me a call at one eight fifty five four fifty 450 noah I would love to hear a different perspective on this. And anybody from Libra has an open invitation to come on the program and, and chat with us and, and help me understand what I'm missing here. Um, so I wish them the best of luck, but I was disappointed to see the price tag. Matrix has some interesting developments. Um, th- so we talked a little bit about spaces. And the fact that they've launched spaces. Now, this is the replacement for community. It has, it, 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 as I've begun to really dig in and try to apply this to my working environment and, 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 and my personal, uh, communication strategy, really, uh, what I found is spaces are absolutely unequivocally necessary when you start, when communication platforms start to scale. One of the biggest problems that Discord, Slack, Telegram, all of them have is there's no real control over what ends up being noise. Because if you exist, if you have one platform to rule them all, which Matrix undeniably is, the problem quickly becomes, if I have one communication platform for personal, one communication platform for this work, one communication platform for that work, and one communication platform for this hobby, it's easy then to say, I'm going to jump on Telegram for this, or Matrix for that, or Slack for this, or email for that. Uh, or Mattermost for this, y- you can kind of break it up. Once you want to have one single platform, you have a couple of choices. Either you do what I've been doing, which is have multiple accounts and sign into the account for the hat that you're wearing that day, or you go to Spaces. And Spaces is the real answer to that to that problem. And it, what it allows you to do is say, hey, right now, I'm working at AltaSpeed. So I have 9, 10, 11, 12 rooms that we work at everything from our software development guys to our sales team to our back-end business administration people, to our internal IT people, to the main chat that is out with our technicians in the field. And I have to, I want to see the traffic from the vast majority of those all day long while I'm at work. I don't want to see traffic 
from my community channels. I don't want to see traffic for the most part from my personal channels unless it's my wife telling me that one of my kids is hurt or something like that. And so there's, there's a select amount of channels I want to watch all of the time. And then there's a select amount of noise I want to tune out. And so today, the way I've been doing that is with uh, multiple accounts. Spaces allows me to start to organize all of those chats uh, into a hierarchy. And the ability to do nested spaces, which is what I've been playing with this week, is absolutely fantastic because it allows me to create ultraspeed technologies. And then within that, technical and administrative and sales, and I can jump in and out of those individual subgroups and communicate with those tiny little micro communities and then back out back to, to the home. But I've never left my platform. And so when I get a message that comes completely in from left field that I just wasn't thinking about from, you know, maybe it's my one of my producers and says, hey, this thing is coming up on Asno next week. Can you answer this quick question, A, B or C? And it takes me five seconds to answer every once in a while during my workday. I can be like, ah, oh, breather, go back to click on the home. See all my matrix chats. Here's all the notifications. Oh, look at that. So-and-so had a question. Jump in there, answer that question, go back into UltraSpeed, go back to work. I'm done for the day. Move out of the UltraSpeed space. I go into my personal space. Now I'm only seeing messages from my family and my kids and my wife. Again, same platform. All the buttons are in the same place. All the work, all the things, the way that I copy and paste in or the reactions that I use, all of those things, the things that my mind is automatically tuned to listen for, for the notifications that admittedly annoying ping that they have I really would like to change the default notification tone, but my mind automatically, you know, recognizes that or sees the little red notification thing down in the corner. All of those processes are consistent from work to home. It's just now I'm receiving messages or communicating with the people I want to communicate outside of work and work will wait. And tomorrow will worry about itself. And when I get in the next morning, then I will deal with, with work, with work stuff, unless it's an emergency, in which case there's a select amount of channels that I'm able to watch outside of work. Uh, in addition to that, though, what Matrix has done is they've started to integrate into Thunderbird, which is a particularly, uh, particularly interesting to me because I use Thunderbird as my main mail client. So they're using libpurple. And essentially what they're doing is they started with an IRC uh, chat implementation of Thunderbird and have now added the ability to do Matrix. And so you can add a Matrix account. Now, it's by no means finished or perfected. And obviously, the vast majority of actual Matrix proper features are going to be missing. But basic things like chats and getting notifications and read notifications even, which didn't exist with IRC, but exists, they've added that specifically for Matrix. Those are now integrated into Thunderbird. And quite frankly, the concept that someday I could install one one application and monitor every email account that I need to keep an eye on, as well as keep an eye on specific chats or all of my chats, all with one application, tells me a couple of things. First of all, it again reinforces this idea that there is real merit in having one chat application to rule them all or one communication platform that you're on. It also reinforces the idea that this is why we need a completely open source and, and, and federated solution, because you'll notice nothing like this exists for Telegram or even Signal. Moxie doesn't really like the idea, uh, even though it's completely open source and the code's out there, it's nothing stopping you from doing it per se. He's not real big on endorsing third party clients, third party servers. And Telegram, frankly, just doesn't have uh, the ability to open source the server. They keep promising it, and it just never comes. Uh, and so they're always, so at the end of the day, that is a cloud service. It is. That's what it is. It just happens to be a very good cloud service that has very good support on Linux and has an open source enough client that you can kind of hack around it in an open API that we can tie to other things. So we like it. 
But if you're looking for, if you're skating to where the puck is going to be rather than where the puck is today, you arrive at Matrix every time. Because the, the things that they're starting to work on today, again, not feature complete, nothing that I would look at and tell you, this is what you should use to communicate with your business or this is what you should use to stay in contact with your wife or your kids or anything like that. But the fact that I can begin to play with using my email client as a one-stop communication shop, that tells me that we're skating to the right place. So huge thanks to Matthew and his team at Matrix for, for the work that they've done or continue to do on Spaces, as well as these neat little things like getting this tied uh, to Lib Purple. Also, uh, there is a update on NeoChat, which is the... Uh, default, which is the messenger native to KDE. And so obviously element is the matrix client that is fully supported, has all the features, bells and whistles and run by the element crew themselves. But other people have made native clients that are not just WebRTC wrappers around an element web page, basically, which is what element is, if we're honest. Uh, and, and, and one of those is NeoChat. And so I have on the studio machine, I am actually using a uh, Nico. Uh, N-H-E-K-O, which is probably my favorite native client, uh, but NeoChat has released a, a an update as well, so I invite you to check that out. Firefox has uh, des- redesigned their interface and come out with a new release. Uh, simplified browser Chrome and toolbar, less frequently used items have been removed, and so you can focus on the important navigations items. They've cleaned up and streamlined the menus. They've reorganized and prioritized the menu content according to usage, updated the labels, removed all of the what they're calling icon- iconography. They've updated all of the prompts, and so the info bars, panels, and modems have a much cleaner interface and cleaner, uh, clearer language. So, for example, when you click on that little icon that says, we want to use your keyboard, or excuse me, when we want to use your microphone and camera, uh, that now has a nice, elegant little pop-up instead of the, 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 the little boxy thing that used to, used to pop up. It was always effective, but now it just looks a lot, a lot nicer. They have inspired tab designs. The floating tabs neatly contain all of the information and surface cues. So when you need them, things like visual indicators for audio controls, they've also rounded the design of the corners to make the active tab, uh, support focus and signals and the ability to move between tabs as you need to. Uh, they support fewer interruptions, reduced number of alerts and messages, and so that you can browse without being distracted. They have a more cohesive, calmer visual design, lighter iconography with a refined color palette, and a more consistent styling throughout Firefox. And now with the launch of Firefox 89, they're happy to introduce introduce that Firefox private browsing windows will now include the innovations of total cookie protection, which we've covered on the show before. That means, in short, that when you open a private window, each one of the websites that you visit is going to be given a separate cookie jar, and it will store the cookies for that website only. And that will prevent cross-site uh, uh, that will prevent sites from looking in the cookie jar of other sites. And so cookies can no longer be used to follow you from one site to the other and gather your browser browser history. Now, this came out earlier in February this year. That's when they came out with the total cookie protection. Again, you can go back and listen to previous episodes where we dug into that a little bit more. But this is a new extra strong protection against cross-site tracking and cookies. And since Firefox 86, total cookie protection has been available for all users who have FTP strict mode enabled. And with Firefox 89, they're extending that protection to private browsing windows. OBS has a new release, OBS Studio 27.0. They've added source visibility transitions, which allow you to set a transition for a source when showing it or hiding it. They've added service integrations. And so the browser dock 
uh, can support in this works in both macOS and Linux, and you can actually control certain functions in the browser from this from this browser dock. They've added support for Wayland on Linux, and this includes a new Pipewire capture source. So if you're using Wayland and a bunch of users 20.10 or newer, also I'll point out that. Fedora ship day one with Pipewire support, and you'll have the opportunity to do that in uh, OBS 27.0. They've added a track mat for uh, for uh, Stinger transitions, as well as they support a scene mask to display parts of the previous and current scene at the same time. They've added a visual camera toggle to the system tray and automatic rotation on video capture devices, which can now be manually disabled. They've also added the auto reset option to the video for Linux source to handle dropouts when certain devices are no longer available. Make sure to check out OBS, OBS Studio 27.0. It's what we use here at the Ask Noah Show to stream the episode and record it each and every week. A few weeks ago, we interviewed Steve Ovens and invited him on, onto the program to discuss an introduction to networking. We then did a follow-up segment, Networking Part 2, so that you could get a better understanding of how to get started uh, managing your network at home or setting up a home lab. Now, in the field, I obviously, you know, these days I don't do as much in the field work as I would like. I'm stuck behind a computer doing a lot of administrative tasks. So I've invited our lead installer, Kenny Schmidt, to join us on this episode of Ask Noah to discuss uh, some of the things that we've seen in the field and how we can apply some of those concepts to solve programs. So welcome into the program. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So you had indicated before uh, off air a little bit, you'd said, hey, I had something to add to the to the feedback segment uh, and and you wanted to address uh, the guy who says, hey, I, I want one keyboard and mouse to control them all. So Logitech provides a hardware solution to this. So Noah had mentioned Synergy as a software solution where you can install a program on your computers that you'd like to switch from, and it'll seamlessly switch your keyboard and mouse from those different systems. Uh, if you wanted to be, if you're a little bit worried about some of this, uh, the implications, the security implications, like Noah had mentioned, about uh, a program and a company having access to your keyboard and mouse on your system, there's another answer to that, and that is the Logitech MX series. So the MX series includes their ergo mouse, their vertical mouse, and their master mouse. So a productivity and then a better ergonomic solution and then also a vertical mouse. So it literally changes the orientation from your hand being horizontal to vertical. Um, and those are the three options they provide for mouses. And then the other one uh, there's a keyboard as well that has the same functionality, and that is the uh, K780 multi-device wireless keyboard. Um, so this is uh, just a really nice way that you can basically use function keys, so FN, F1, FN, F2, and FN, F3, to change between three different computers. And then on the mouse, there are uh, three different profiles that you can select from for three different systems. So this could be uh, your desktop, uh your phone and say a tablet if you're uh, wanting to use that or his use case as well. Yeah. And that, you know, what I like about that, Kenny, is that would actually work really well with a desktop, whereas my solution, not so much. Correct. Yeah, exactly. That's very cool. So then the only thing he'd have to deal with is he'd manually switch the input devices separate from the display device. And so you still have to have some sort of a HDMI or display port switch uh, to switch the displays, but then you could potentially use the keyboard and switch in the hardware and just change what you're connected to. Now, here's a question for you. Can you change, could you install a couple different Unify receivers and pair to different Unify receivers, or does that switching only work with Bluetooth? That switching, I believe, only works with Bluetooth. Okay. 
Okay, well, very cool. Well, there's one more option for you if you need to switch between different machines. So, uh, Kenny, you're out in the field, so you're the guy, you're the guy that, that, that goes and, and you, and you walk in on site and somebody says, Hey, I have this problem XYZ. And then you say, okay, I'm going to take my knowledge of networking and I'm going to, I'm going to implement a solution. And so, uh, the other, uh, a few weeks ago, you went out to a site and came out and they, it was, it was a, it was a property that had a, a guest computer and they plugged in a guest computer and they just plugged it into their, their network. And they were like, ah, oh, that there's a network jack over there. We'll just plug it in right there. And they plug it in. And sure enough, the thing comes online and now the guests have internet. So they, they think this is great. And so you roll up and you take a look at this. I think you came out there to install a printer and you took one look at it and said, uh, guys, <laughs> this is not exactly PCI compliant. You can't do it this way. You have to separate these out. But now you have a problem because the router and the network operation center is what? 300 feet, 500 feet from where this computer is running a wire in that building. Is it was built in nineteen like forty nineteen fifty. It was not designed for structured wiring, and that's putting it kindly. Uh, so, so running another wire that's like a day and a half job. So, what do we do when we have one physical run from one location to the other, and you want to, but you have to have two separate networks? How did you solve that? Well, the answer simply is VLANs. We went to a virtual infrastructure for our LANs. Uh, we set up a. The way the site was originally set up was they had two different LAN ports on their router, one for an admin network and one for a guest network. The guest network, of course, was for, you know, the access points. So that way you come into, a, say, it's a coffee shop or a hotel, you'd get connected to the guest Wi-Fi and you wouldn't have access to any of their, uh, like, say, printers or mm. credit card readers or any of those major infrastructure pieces that you would have Um and the, that segments them out. And, and just to be clear, so that is being done on like a NetGate 3100 or it, we have our own in-house built one that, that we call a pro security gateway. Um, but those are essentially running, uh, either PFSense or, or a fork of PFSense that, um, and, and then there are physical interfaces out on the front and we've assigned one for the WAN, we've assigned one for the administrative LAN and then one for the guest LAN. Correct. And that's the beauty of PFSense. So the, this particular case, we had deployed our uh, PSG, so our AltaSpeed Pro Security Gateway. Um, and as said, they had, they had plugged into the wrong ports and they started putting things on the admin network. So the nice thing is PFSense allows us the flexibility of both. So we can do a hardware LAN setup. So we have on the PSG, there's actually five uh, interface ports. So we can have up to five physical LANs or we can set VLANs on any of them and have potentially as many as you'd want. Um, I think you had mentioned how many were you able to get on there at one time uh, with yeah, VLANs? I, well, I was when we were first, we were first, I was, I was trying to demonstrate to somebody the power of the SG1100. And the, the client had said, well, I don't want the SG1100 because it only has two network jacks and, or th- maybe three. Does it have an op port? I can't remember. But he was concerned that there weren't enough jacks. And I said, well, with VLANs and the way that PFSense handles interfaces, it doesn't really matter. And he goes, what do you mean? So we took an HP 48 port switch and I created 48 different networks out of the SG 1100 and connected one port out of the SG 1100 to a trunk port on the HP switch and said, look, plug into any one of the other 47 ports and you get a different IP address on a different LAN, all separate firewall rules, separate DHCP servers, the whole nine yards separated out over 48 ports. And so we, the really, the power is in the software, not necessarily in the hardware configuration. Once we've connected a PFSense device to a switch, we have an unlimited amount of 
interfaces because we can just keep stacking switches. Yeah, and the beauty of the free and open source solution is that software is provided to you openly, right? So we can go ahead and grab that software and implement it into our own hardware device. So we've found at AltaSpeed, uh, we've created this little 1U unit that is can we can sell for an affordable price because we're able to produce it in-house and basically take it and load PFSense onto this device, the, the five interface ports. So you're able to get a 1U rack unit uh, PFSense box. Or for or fork a PFSense just to be for legality and stuff like that. They, they don't actually allow you to load PFSense onto the onto the box itself for legality reasons. So we should, we should be clear about that. But, but, but the idea is that you can go download this software and put it onto any device that you want. And certainly if you're a home user, there's nothing stopping you from repurposing a computer and loading PFSense on that. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so back, getting back to kind of how this infrastructure was set up was we had moved from, we had migrated them essentially from a physical LAN interface where they had two different LANs running on two different ports on their router. And we had just basically simplified that down. So now we recreated those same LANs as VLANs on PFSense. And then we just implemented a small little five port managed switch that we could send both of those VLANs over a trunk port to essentially their front desk where they had another, they had already had a second switch at their front desk and we just assigned two individual ports which devices are on which networks. So for this case, the guest kiosk PC, we assigned to the guest uh, network as you would expect and the guest printer onto that same uh, VLAN and then all of the admin devices. So like your credit card readers, your front desk computers and all those kinds of things were moved back onto the admin network like you would expect. And in PFSense, how long do you think it takes to set up, to, to go in there to the interface tab and break out this thing? Is this a big complicated process that takes hours to do? No. And PFSense makes this actually incredibly easy. It's it's literally just a matter of selecting one of your interfaces. So in this case, we have five. So we'll use uh, interface Five, for example. So we create a new VLAN or, or we enable uh, interface five. And then in PFSense, we go ahead and create a VLAN and then we assign that VLAN to that interface. So we say uh, we want VLAN 10, which is our admin one, mm -hmm. to be on interface five. OK, perfect. So that's good. So now we have one VLAN running and then now we can just keep assigning new VLANs to that same interface. So we can create another VLAN, say 20 guest network. So now we've created that VLAN and we've assigned that to that same interface on port five. Mm -hmm. And then once we have all of those set, we can go in and create rules. So in the firewall, we can create rules for, I would like traffic to be able to talk to, um, if you're on the guest network, I don't want you talking to anything on the admin network. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the admin network, I do want you to be able to talk to all the stuff on the guest network, which is incredibly useful when you're as a technician working on this stuff, because you can just you don't have to plug into, oh, I have to switch over to the guest network real quick. As long as I have access to the admin network, I can still troubleshoot all the issues on the guest side of things, which is just incredibly useful. Well, it opens us up a little bit, too, because we can keep client isolation on on the guest side. So no, like the, on, the, on the guest side, those devices can only talk to their gateway and get out to the world. They can't talk to each other. Whereas from the admin side, if you need to log in, like you're saying, you need to log into the web UI of the printer to do something or you maybe you want to create a specific rule that says the printer can talk to the guest computer but that's the only cross talk we want going on uh, nothing else can happen we can do all of those with firewall rules inside of the router and then we're managing it all from one central device correct yeah once you once you've really learned the fundamentals of the different uh, aspects of pfsense so say for your uh for example, interfaces, once you understand how interfaces work in PFSense, you can really do anything you want. Or once you understand uh, VLANs, it's just a matter of learning each one of those little parts. And mm. then you can basically 
you learn the rules so that way you can break the rules, right? So we figure out, you know, hey, you're supposed to set them up this way. Well, I want to be able to talk to everything both ways, or I don't want to be able to talk to everything both ways, or like you had mentioned, just specific devices being able to talk. So it's really a matter of they allow you the flexibility and you just kind of learn the rules. And once you've learned those rules, you can break them or get creative with how you want to set up your network. So you have had experience with uh, HP switches and you've had experience with Unify switches and, and, and then we've, and then those are kind of enterprise grade. Like there's a certain expectation. And for the most part, they all kind of work the same way. And then you get into some of the lower brand, uh, cheaper, dare I say, switches. And then you start seeing like the Netgears and the TP links and, and, and those kinds. Now I have a TP link switch that runs at my house and I, I, I've really been happy with it. I have a little Netgear one that I travel with and I take with me and it's okay. Um, what have you seen if somebody's out there and they're listening and they're saying, Hey, I want to explore this stuff with no one kidding or talking about. I want to go play with this in my house. But I don't have $600 to go buy an HP enterprise, uh, HPE switch or, or a Dell uh, EMC switch. What, what would you recommend somebody get started with to, to kind of play with and kind of wrap their head around it on, on a budget? Absolutely. And you had mentioned TP-Link. I, that's exactly where I would start. TP-Link has a really nice budget option with their five port managed switch that you could get into. The nice thing about the TP-Link is that it makes assigning and, and configuring all of your VLANs in the switch very simple. Uh, you had also mentioned Netgear. What the problem with the Netgear switches that I found is when you assign the interfaces, they only let you do them uh, per VLAN. So you go to VLAN 10 and then you it shows you five ports on the switch and you can set those five and then you have to switch to VLAN 20 or whatever other VLANs you might be setting up. Um, and that gets problematic because when you're trying to wrap your head around some of this VLAN stuff, it can be very difficult trying to go, okay, that route's there. Well, this one route's here. And you lose track of things when you can't just look at an overview, see of all of the devices here or um, all of the LANs and VLANs there. So what the nice thing about the TP links are is they give you basically, it looks like a little Excel spreadsheet of at the top, it shows all of your uh, VLANs and then all of your ports. And you can just go through and say, this one wants, I want this one tagged with VLAN 10. I want this one tagged with VLAN 20. I want this one untagged. And you can go through and just hit check boxes and put a number in those check boxes. So it really makes uh, for beginners TP link that it's a nice budget and it has a really nice, easy interface to use. We'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. Kenny, you know you have a welcome invitation. Anytime you want to come, we'll do this again soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And a huge thanks to uh, to Kenny for, for swinging by and, and being able to do that with us. We really appreciate it. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. Before I go, I want to let you know of a couple of resources again. Self, this weekend, coming up Friday, Saturday. Make sure to join southeastlinuxfest.org. Stay up to date with all of the information. We're hosting it on Matrix. You can sign up for an account at linuxdelta.com, matrix.linuxdelta.com. Get connected to the Geek Lab. Hey, all of the articles and references that we do, they are published at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Check them out there. Follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. We'll see you next week, 6 p.m. Tuesday. Have a great week. 